Welcome to Episode 7 of the Mostly Skateboarding Podcast. Today's story comes from Dennis McGrath, a skate photographer working in San Francisco in the 90s. I lived in Houston, out high school in Houston, in Texas, and a lot of people, there's a good skate scene there, obviously. There's a big skate park. We used to have a lot of contests. So a lot of guys from the East Coast would kind of migrate towards the West and stop in Texas. I feel like Lenny was one of them. That's how we knew Lenny's mom and stuff, because he was so young. The first time he came to my house, he was probably like 13 or something, you know? And then he ended up leaving home when he was 14, moved to California, just kind of just ran away. John and Lenny were always really close. Like, John was an older skater at the time than Lenny, and, like, was already sponsored and shit when they met. I think, like, Lenny looked up to him and Steve Mills and Danny Morgan and all his kids, you know, that John was skating with at the time. And then they all used to come out to California together. My brother John and him lived together. I moved to San Francisco in 1994. I moved to a flat, and, you know, at the time, it was, like, Embarcadero. That was the last year of Embarcadero. So it was, like, when San Francisco was you know, it was like the Mac of skateboarding, obviously, at the time. And so I moved in. I went to the Art Institute, San Francisco Art Institute, and um, I met a bunch of dudes at art school, some skaters. We got a place. That turned into, like, a skate house. And and then my brother John came up to the city. Those guys were, like, kind of more in San Diego a lot of the time. So. And then they came up to the city, him and John, and I was right when Lenny got on Workshop. You know, Workshop knew that Lenny was, was like, going to be one of their next pros and stuff. So right after that, he got sponsored. He was skating so good to where, like, they before he turned pro, they like ran an apartment and they're paying his rent and shit for him, which is really awesome. Those guys, they're the best. They're good dudes, you know. They're not like some people that just fucking eat chew dudes up and just spit them out and they don't give a shit, you know. Like, they're the one company that's always kind of like they've always like just taken care of their dudes for as long as they could deal with it, you know. Like I said, even when Lenny was like off his rocker and they weren't paying him anymore. They're still sending the boards and shit and hooking them up, you know? And Cardi would still take Lenny's calls and talk to him sometimes even, too. But it made me think of, like, um, I don't know, it's trippy how, how that is. Like, they took care of Lenny right off the bat, boom. They just ran an apartment. Like, oh, he's going to be our next dude. You know, he didn't get a board for, like, another, like, year, probably a year and a half even or something, you know? And so John moved in with Lenny, and they lived kind of, like, you know, like six blocks, it was on Fell Street, like six blocks away from my house on Grove Street. My brother and him were out filming one day for the workshop video of Time Code. They were out in the Presidio, which is like kind of a tight of your neighborhood in San Francisco. So like him and John were out filming like a ton back then. And it's weird because usually there'd be more people with them, you know, like some, like I would have been with him or Blayback or someone else taking photos, but it was just them this day. And they're out probably all around the city that day. They ended at the Presidio. And there was, like, a dumpster off a loading dock, like, some sketchy spot. They probably know they're even thought of skating, you know? Whatever, Lenny just tried to grind the dumpster, and just, like, a few tries in, his board flipped, you know, 50-50, and his board flipped into it. And, you know, it's the beginning of the time code part. It's the last slam in the very beginning part, and he just kind of goes, like, body bag. So that, you know, like, he flips in the dumpster, falls back, hits the back of his head, and John, you know, John was flipping out, like, kind of like he thought he was dead or something. You know, runs over, picks him up off the ground. John said he was, he, he like, came to, but he's blind. He couldn't see, and he's bleeding out of his ears. And, like, you know, John thought he was going to die or something. So they find a payphone. John calls 911. Ambulance comes. And, you know, Lenny's still pretty out of it. Like, 
they, you know, they strap him down. John jumps in the ambulance with them. They go to the hospital. <clears throat> he gets admitted to SF General. So John called Lenny's mom, you know, I guess because, like, we knew her a little bit. Told her what happened. She flew out the next day. She was a nurse, ironically. John and his mom showed up the hospital. Lenny wasn't there. And what had happened is he woke up in the morning and didn't know what happened because he, he had a brain, you know, like some kind of head trauma. He didn't remember anything. Pulled the IV. He didn't know what he was doing in the hospital. He kind of like, woke, came to, what the fuck am I doing here? Pulled the IV out of his arms, which is kind of crazy. And he got up and walked out in a hospital gown out like into, you know, the mission or whatever portrayal right there in San Francisco. He went to get on a bus and a cop pulled up behind the bus and <laughs> got on the bus. Letty bailed off the back door and ran away and ran behind the hospital and the one one freeway is right behind the hospital. And he jumped a big fence or whatever and then hit out like right by the one one freeway, kinda like where homeless people live in shit. For like two hours apparently. He just like hung out there hiding you know, like, in his gown, like, whatever, holding his arm and stuff. Like, he must have still been had a headache. So then he decides the coast is clear, jumps the fence, goes back over to Petrero, hops on another bus, and apparently he got on the bus, and the bus driver wouldn't go anywhere. He just sat there. And then a cop got on, I guess, like, two sheriffs got on, like, each door so he couldn't bail. And then later, he was like, hey, I'm not going to go to jail, am I? And they were like, no, we, you, you need to go back and get in bed, dude. Like, you're, you got, you hit your head, and we understand what's wrong with you, so we know that you're not well. So, you know, like, nothing's going to happen to you. Just come with us. So the cops made him go back to the hospital. So he goes back in the hospital, and John and my brother and Lenny's mom are there waiting for him. So John had the video camera with him, showed Lenny the footage, what happened. You know, and that was where he was like, wow, like, he didn't remember it. Soon this happened. It might have been a week later. Just started skating again. And at the time, Drake Jones lived at my house, and he was out skating with Drake and a bunch of dudes. And I just remember Drake coming home that evening saying, like, dude, Lenny got run over by a van downtown today. Like, whatever, we were bombing, like, California Street or whatever, going down towards the pier, just downtown to skate. And uh, they were all ahead of him. He was behind everyone, and he's trying to, like, run around, you know, like, just go through, like, a yellow light probably, you know, and traffic started coming. But Lenny bailed out and, like, slid out, and the pack bell van came right at him. And apparently, like, it rolled up his leg and over his chest, and he moved his head. And, like, one wheel of a van rolled over his whole body. And he was fine. He got up and, like, brushed himself off. And everyone was like, are you okay? Are you okay? They called the ambulance. You know, the ambulance came. The MTs, like, checked him out. He was fine. And he, and he, like, he was real stubborn, of course. So he said, like, no, I'm not going to the hospital. And they're like, hey, we think you should go in and just get checked out. But he wouldn't. And they kind of, like, checked him out on the street. And he was fine. That night, I remember, like, after Drake came home, like, a few hours later, Lenny called my house that night, answered the phone, and he's preaching and talking about Jesus and the Bible and all that stuff, and I was kind of like, all right, like, this is way out of left field. He was always just, like, drinking and smoking weed and just being kind of a derelict, like, skating down downtown, just whatever. Like, I didn't never know he was Christian, so I asked him where he got a Bible, and he said he already had a Bible. And obviously, he comes from, like, a nice Christian family in North Carolina and stuff, so... That made sense. Obviously, I grew up going to church and stuff, but uh, that day on, he was saved. You know, like, seriously, maybe God did save him. I don't know if he was a little bit hit by a van. As much as I don't believe in that crap, I, I, I did. There's no other explanation for it, in a sense. And then on top of that, another really interesting thing that happened just a few months later. Lenny left when he was 14 years old. You know, so he obviously didn't have much of an education, like, a few months after he got saved, he came over to my house with the Spanish Bible, preaching in Spanish, like, full-fluent Spanish, reading it and preaching 
and he kept telling us he had been hanging out, like, out in the Excelsior District and stuff, like, preaching at Spanish churches. And then I remember we were all kind of like, okay, like, you can speak Spanish now. How did you learn to speak Spanish in a few weeks? Oh, the Lord gave me the language, all this crazy shit. And I, to this day, I kind of wonder, like, how do you learn to speak Spanish? He wasn't the smartest kid in the world. Maybe God gave him language. I, it's pretty crazy, all the shit that happened to him. He got, he got saved. He was always preaching and trying to save people. And it's really fascinating. Like, I kind of feel like I want people to look at his book and read it because it's really interesting, like, the, the way it all went down and stuff. Like, it's so it's such a great story. One of the things I hope from this thing, I sent Lenny color copies of the book so for, in prison, and he really likes it, which made me feel good. And I could tell it made him feel good about himself which is, like, the least I could do. And I also feel like the next six or seven or eight years, whatever it is, he's going to be spending in there. Like, I feel like the more he can sit and look at this thing, like, maybe it'll help him think, like, hey, like, maybe I could turn my life around and not go back into society and just fuck up again or whatever it is, you know, like, and be kind of get a job and just try to be normal. I don't know what else to say, you know, say. I kind of feel like I hope that he can maybe do that, but I've seen in the last few times that he was out that he really couldn't. He was fighting and riding motorcycle all crazy and shit. Like, I don't know. It's kind of hard, I think, too, once you've been in prison so much, too, is being getting spit out into society and kind of trying to be normal again. And one of the things that he said to me the last time I took a photo of him was that uh, he asked me if I wanted him to smile, and I said, no, just want you to relax and be comfortable. And he told me that since, and he had been out of jail for two years, and he says to me, Ever since I've been in prison, I have a hard time smiling. Even now that I've been out for a while, like, every time I smile, I feel like I'm faking it. Because it kind of made me realize how tortured he is in his own head, you know. The Christianity thing was what really fucked Lenny up. If he wasn't so serious yeah. about Christian shit and it got so in his head, that's all he wanted to do anymore, that it fucked up his skating, you know, clouded his vision and skateboarding. He wasn't focused anymore. Calling kids sinners and shit. There, there was one workshop tour, and I remember that tour, Hill told me after the tour went over, because it was when he was, they were, like, having issues with Lenny. I think he might have called and talked, he was talking to me and my brother about Lenny to see how, what was up with him. And I remember being like, what's going on? And Mike was like, dude, they were, those guys were on tour, and we were getting calls from shops canceling orders. We don't want Lenny Kirkboards anymore. Parents are coming here saying that Lenny was telling their kids that, that they're sinners and they're going to hell if they don't get saved by Jesus and shit. The shops are calling workshops like, hey, we can't sell this kid's board anymore. I mean, that's kind of amazing to think about. You're on tour trying to promote your pro career and the company you ride for, and in turn, you're just basically shooting yourself in the foot and the company as well. Like, kind of crazy. That was why, you know, workshops started backing off and, and no one else wanted to hook him up anymore. When he just went back to prison, he, he needed $50,000 to get bailed out. He built a million dollars. He needed 50 grand. And he, he was calling workshops. This is right when workshop went out of business. He was calling workshop, trying to get a hold of Carter. He thought someone was going to give him that kind of money, which is completely insane. And he yeah. said, he wrote me in this letter, like, I was calling the workshop, but something was really wrong with their phone lines. Like, their phone lines were down for good this time. Like, it's kind of ironic because when he, it, it's in the book, this letter. And you read it and you're like, wow, that's ironic because that was right when workshop, like, went boom, belly up. And thank God he never killed anyone. That's all I could say. Because he was robbing people with soft shotgun downtown San Francisco. And, you know, he was hanging out at the pier with a gun back, apparently. I don't know if he was robbing skaters, maybe. But I know he's, like, robbing old people and just robbing people downtown. It's just so crazy. I mean, 
mean, he used to speak in tongues and shit. He would call in my house and do that shit, and I never, I've seen it, like, in movies, and, like, and I, there's a documentary about, like, snake handling persons or whatever, and I remember seeing it, and then that, and being like, wow, that's fucking crazy. I mean, it was terrifying, like, it was so evil-looking, and the stuff that would be coming out of his mouth, it wasn't really words, it was, like, this gibberish that, whatever he was trying to say, but he would shake and convulse and shit, it was amazing, it was insane. People would be staying in my house from, like, the East Coast, or wherever it was, like, you know, like, Matt Reason or whoever, like, skaters, and Lenny would come over and they would just be like, wow, this kid is fucking off. <laughs> you know, they would just sit take a seat. Like, what's going on? Until they got sick of it and they would have to get out of the room. <laughs> Big thanks to Dennis McGrath for sharing this story. Also, I have to thank Chris Naracco for connecting me to Dennis. For this episode, I want to recommend Dennis McGrath's new book, Heaven, about Lenny Kirk. The first run of 1,000 is sold out, so track down a shop or friend who's got one. If you're looking for more skate podcasts, I highly recommend the one that Tim O'Connor is doing with Jinko Mag. Also, Ed Templeton was recently on the Occasionally Awesome podcast telling some great stories. Head to MostlySkateboarding.com for links to all my recommendations and other show notes. Don't forget to follow Mostly Skateboarding on Twitter, Tumblr, and the blog for daily skate radness.